Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back, you guys. Thanks for listening. And of course, thank you for making a commitment to your learning. We hope you're doing well. If you haven't joined us before, welcome, welcome, welcome. I am Yvonne Brandenburg. I'm one of your hosts for the show, and I am joined by Jordan Porter. Hello, hello, and happy new year. Yeah, I know. Woo, is this the the first one after? Yes. Technically, it's the first one after New Year's. Yeah, because our last one was New Year's Eve. That's true. Um, how did you celebrate? <laughs> I was in bed by 10.30, please. <laughs> <Same>. <laughs> oh my God, I'm glad I'm not the only one. I'm like, <laughs> I swear I'll stay up. And then I passed out at 10.30. <laughs> no, no, no. I was like, I probably got the most sleep that night than I normally do. I was in bed by 10.30 and I slept till 8, which is amazing because it never happens. Oh. I know. <laughs> no, I definitely got up at the normal time, which was like 5.30. And I was like, okay, I'm awake. And I tootled around the house. And then I was like, I had like anxiety all day because (laughs) I was on call that night. Oh, yeah. So that was last night. So I was on call from 7 p.m. until 7 a.m., which, first of all, I'm usually in bed by 9.30. So I was like, oh, my God, okay, 7 p.m. So at some point, try to get a nap in, which, of course, did not happen yesterday. And then I was like, make sure that your ringer's on, your phone. So yeah, you right. Called in. And then I woke up this morning at eight o'clock and I was like, I did not get called in. It was very exciting. So I got to sleep in this morning, which was great. That's nice. I think I woke up like five times in the middle of the night checking my yeah. phone. But <laughs> I'd be anxious that I want to hear it. Yeah, I can't. Well, because I usually do the like, do not disturb thing on my phone. Yeah, that's so what I had I to too. make sure to like turn that off last night. Yeah. And then I kept like putting it down when I like went to the kitchen and I was like, oh God, where's my phone? So we yeah, I was pretty anxious and then managed to sleep in this morning. We didn't do anything for New Year's. Like, I'm pretty sure my kids were like out of the house most of the day. Mm. I cleaned. So I cleaned the, the dog's cages and stuff. And then like, I don't know. I think they came back home around like six ish PM, nice. made dinner, and then we went to bed. Like I wasn't like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're we're working on a uh, on the house now that we're back in. We have to fix all the stuff that well, needed to get fixed. At least you're back in. Yeah. Did you did you <laughs> see the picture that I posted last night? Yes. <laughs> so I thought it was funny because I now have a sheet behind mine because I'm like that's such a good idea, and the sheet was still clean from like when I washed it yesterday, I never put it on the bed. So nice. Yeah. This is a uh, smells nice. <laughs> like this blanket it's, you know, it's big. It <laughs> helps dampen some sound and I can't wait to get my regular space set up again, but I'm not in a closet. So that's exciting. Oh my God. Okay. So if you haven't joined us before I was displaced from my house for about two and a half months because of poo water. So we talked about this previously, but I am back home, which is very exciting. Um, my cats are here. So again, <laughs> they may start making appearances, but they're sleeping right now. So I'm hoping that that stays that way. However, my children are not. So we'll see. 
girl. I know we're testing it. We're really <laughs> testing it today. It's one of those things. It's like Beetlejuice. We say it too many times. It starts happening. Right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so let's dive into this week's episode. A uh, little bit of housekeeping. We asked last week, the question of the week was, who would you like to see on the podcast and what questions would you ask them? And we're super appreciative of a couple of kind of bigger names. Um, so mm-hmm. David or Dave Cowan and Jeff Bacchus, they both answered and, you know, we're, we're working on things actually as we speak because <laughs> they answered this question. And then David lists as well. So if you have not heard of these guys, you definitely should. Dave and Jeff are from the Vet Tech Cafe. And then David Liss, if you haven't heard him at a conference speaking, I'm surprised. Right? <laughs> um, I was so thinking he, about that because I'm going to VMX in a couple weeks and oh. he's he's lecturing like several different lectures while I'm there. So Is he? Nice. You should yeah. definitely say hi to him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then we have a couple of shout outs. And this one is is kind of, it's a little bit funny slash sad. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't even know this was a thing. So we found a review back from October on a platform that we didn't even know existed. So I'm sorry we didn't know. Um, but Amber Hurley, thank you very much, by the way, for this review because... <laughs> because it was back from October, but she said she literally searched for a tech podcast a couple months ago and was so disappointed not to found one. And then she was super excited to have one to listen to now. She works in a small two tech practice with one doctor. And so she doesn't get to interact with other techs very much. She says, good luck and keep being superheroes in the field. Oh, I know that's so nice. And I feel bad that we weren't like tech savvy enough to find that (laughs) review sooner. (laughs) I know. I was like, oh my gosh. So it's a, I love that review, by the way. It's, it's pretty awesome. Um, Well, plus like, because that's like our very first review she was she was our first review and we didn't even know about it that's i know which makes me i worry that there's others out there that we haven't i know that we haven't found yet (laughs) we're really sorry amber but we really 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 appreciate you and you also keep being a superhero that's right i two texts one doctor in a practice i can't i i worked in a small practice for a hot second and i i can't do it it's it's too much. Mm-hmm. So our second review is from Cavnav22 USA. He said, informative and well done podcast. I am a potential client and not in the veterinary profession, but still understood in most of the topics and learned a great deal about the proper care of our pets. I would recommend this to veterinary professionals as well as pet owners. The website has a great deal of information and resources. They host The hosts are very well versed, intelligent, and even put some humor into the shows. Keep up the good work. Aww. We really appreciate that, especially if we can like simplify things to make people who really <laughs> don't know the medical field very well understand. So yes, thank I you. definitely agree with that. Can I say this one? Cause I'm so excited about it. It's a big one. It's a big one. So we hit 160 on the Apple podcast rank for the U S under medicine, which holy moly, that was really cool. I'm like, yeah, ranked. I know we, we actually ranked in like granted it is in medicine, but there's so many medicine podcasts out there. So, so many, well, because I'm if you go on like this. how many human medicine, Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. I'm also excited about the Australian one. I know we didn't <laughs> type that in here. We didn't type it in oh. there. I'm sorry. <laughs> 
I'm really excited that we ranked number 14 on the I can't Australian. That. That's crazy. Right? So thank you, Australia, for being such supporters of us. <laughs> exactly. You rock. <laughs> Uh, step up your game, United States. I know. God. <laughs> 160. Come on, ladies. Right? All right. And gentlemen. Sorry. I know there's, gentlemen. I know there's guys out there because we, we, we have some on our list, which is really yeah. cool. I don't think we have any questions to be answered. Uh, I think we've kind of, we've talked about things in the Facebook group and mm -hmm. some people are starting to email us, which is really cool. So definitely if you can leave a review, we'd love it and we will share your review. And if you want to send us an email, you definitely can. You can do podcast at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. It'll get to us and, you know, either Jordan or I will answer, um, answer you guys directly, which is, you know, it's always fun when we get to talk to you guys. Mm -hmm. you can dive right into our, this week's topic. Yes. I feel like this is like the internal medicine topic. Yeah, pretty much. So we're doing a little different because we're not actually discussing a specific disease this week. No, like, we're, we're, we're just discussing like for internal medicine. Yeah. A vague, a vague internal medicine workup. Yes. Which could lead to so many things. <laughs> yeah. Which is why we started with it as a little bit of vague because we are going to do our GI series for this month. Um, so. Dun, dun, dun. dun. So we have to start somewhere. <laughs> Even though we've already talked about vomit and poop, now we're going to talk about how to work it up. How to work it up. Girl, work it. But for this week, um, so we are going to be talking about general workup of gastrointestinal cases. And so basically, this it's a huge topic. So we had to kind of pare it down to how in internal medicine we work up cases. Um, so these are typically cases that have been seen in general practice or through the emergency clinic. You know, the, the normal stuff just really isn't working. So, so they come to us. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to be talking about more chronic gastrointestinal disease. And what we mean by chronic is longer than three months. And that could be on and off of symptoms or it can be consistent. Typically the stuff we're talking about is going to be more chronic versus like the acute GI. That's usually not what we're seeing in our department. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, we always see it like when it's like months, my dog's had GI issues for six months off and on and meds help. But as soon as we come off, we're back in trying to get more meds. That mm. is like, I am specialty. Yeah. Right there. That is tonight's special. On the that, menu. Is, <laughs> that is definitely <laughs> tonight's special on the menu. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, so just a reminder, we do have the GI page on the internal medicine for pet parents website. So if you go to internal medicine for pet slash GI, it gives you kind of the anatomy and breaks down just basic GI stuff. It doesn't, this, that page doesn't go into diagnostics. It just kind of goes into anatomy and physiology. So that's a, that's a good reference if you don't have um, other reference points. We're going to jump this into, like our specialty. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're going to jump into kind of history and how it'll present. And you're going to start noticing a theme. <laughs> if you haven't already, I mean, come on. I'm pretty sure you guys have. <laughs> <laughs> so the biggest, biggest part of GI disease is getting a thorough history. Cause we're talking chronic GI and a lot of times, well, not a lot, but there are quite a few clients. I feel like that don't always put two and two together mm -hmm. and they say, mm -hmm. well, this is happening now, but 
you know, it may have been a month and then maybe a month and a half ago, two months ago, there was an issue. So sometimes they don't see the overall big picture. And, and so it's, it's up to us to really poke prod and prompt them to see if we can get the most history that we possibly can. Um, yeah. And if you guys have the small animal internal medicine for veterinary technicians and nurses book that we reference all the time, if you go to page uh, 196, there are history questions, which is really great. It's a, it's a really in-depth questionnaires um, that, that you can use in your clinics when you have patients coming in with GI disease. Um, yeah. And it's stuff we've talked about previously, but I think there's a couple of extra questions, which are really nice. So yeah. if, you, um, if you have it, great. If not, uh, let us know and we can, we can maybe see if we can reference it. Yeah. Somewhere. Cause I mean, the main, the main things that you're going to want to take out of that is like finding out what symptoms mom and dad or grandma or whatever. Cause we have so many people who actually bring in the pets, see at home. Mm-hmm. And then what's, what's worked for them in the past medication wise and what hasn't, especially what hasn't, I don't think people really realize that you should ask like, okay, well, yeah, you tried metronidazole, but it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And like, how long did you give it kind of thing? And were you giving it consistently? Things like that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I think those are definitely history questions that should be taken into account. Yeah, definitely agree with that. So some of the the big things when we're talking about GI cases, as far as history goes, is weight loss. So are they seeing weight loss? You know, is it a gradual change or is it acute? Um, You know, so was there a change in diet? Is there a change in activity level? We're going to look at our body condition score. We're going to look at our muscle condition score. If you guys haven't already seen those, I believe, is it, is it Purina? that has the body condition score, muscle condition scores. Yeah. Well, I'll try to find them. I have the links for them somewhere and we'll, we'll get those to you because they, they really are, they're awesome visuals and and you can use them with clients too, to kind of show them the different body condition score and muscle condition score. And I don't know about you, but I feel like the muscle condition score is really underutilized. Oh, definitely. I'm going to like take a step back real quick, just because this is like a a thing of mine. There should be a weight recorded every time you see a patient, because sometimes parents won't understand, like won't notice that their pet has lost three pounds. Three pounds to you and I is not a whole lot, not a big deal, but three pounds to a Maltese is, or a cat Mm -hmm. is yeah. It's a pretty big deal. So please, every time you see a patient in the hospital, even if it's just for a wellness visit, please obtain a weight because then that way you can bring it to the parent's attention. Hey, you know, so-and-so's lost three and a half pounds in the last year. What's changed and what are you seeing at home? Mm. Okay. Rant over. No, no, that's it's a really good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I love looking in medical records from PDVMs or primary veterinarians and seeing what the changes are. Yeah. And a lot of programs now do like the graphing for you. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. so a lot of your like veterinary, like record keeping, if you're entering in a weight each visit, you're going to see a chart and that's going to be more noticeable than actually paying attention to the numbers. So yeah, I get, I get a lot of utilize it. handwritten charts still from, yeah, from referring that's true. But yeah, it, I mean, I, I use the electronic in our clinic and, and we have a place where you can see all that, which is awesome because then you can reference, you know, how much were they last time? How much are they now? Um, mm-hmm. So that's really important to take a look at. And, and the muscle condition score, that's also great, especially if you've got pets with steroid therapy, you can talk to them mm-hmm. about that because sometimes 
the scale doesn't change, but the muscle condition does. So that's also something to kind of keep in mind. And when we're talking about weight loss and, you know, diet change and all that, hopefully, hopefully you guys have the the ability in your clinic somewhere, or you just have a pen and paper, but you're going to check to see if the diet that they're on is meeting their nutritional needs. So calculating their RER or their resting energy requirement. Uh, I know my nutrition peeps are are smiling happily right now, I know, but, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you want to make sure you calculate that. So we'll, we'll put this in the notes as well, but it's, it's the kilogram times 30 plus 70 is your resting energy requirement amount. So you're going to mm-hmm. take those KCALs and you know, that's, you're going to base weight off of that. Now, again, there's variances for that, but that is your, you know, basic resting energy requirement. And that's per day, like per 24 hours, not per meal. So if (laughs) people are feeding their pet two or three times a day, you want to divide that by how many ever times they're feeding. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I've seen clients come in for weight loss and then like everything else is normal and we do an ultrasound and they're normal. And then we like try to find out how much they're feeding and they really are just truly underfeeding. So it can happen. People don't really realize. Well, and, and this is where I've seen that happen is where at some point they switched the diet, right? They, they switched from one brand to another and they're, and they're feeding, feeding the with the same cup scoop that they've always fed with. Well, that's fine. Except the cacao per cup could be different. So yeah. all of a sudden they went from 500 calories to 300 calories. So, you know, that's, that's something also to kind of keep in mind. Yeah. We see that a lot. Like when people are trying to cheat, treat like GI disease and they switch from like an over the counter, mm. like store brand to like Hills ID and yeah. especially ID low fat, like they yeah. need to be fed more. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise it's the, the Royal Cane and GI low fat, same thing. You know, you're, yeah. it is a lower fat, lower KCAL. So that's, that's, something that you guys can do. And like, I have in my clinic, I have a, cause Jordan makes fun of me because I am good with Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> so I have like an, so a little, good. <laughs> I, I'm not like great at it, but I like it because it makes my life easier. Um, but I have like a little Excel spreadsheet that I can just plug the weight in and I can do RER and I use it for like the feeding tube guidelines and all that stuff. So I may just see if I can. Yeah. We should try to share that. Yeah. I'll, I'll put that I'll put that somewhere for you guys because that should be in the technician treasure trove. Heck yeah, technician Sign treasure up for trove. It. Yeah. The TTT <laughs> is totally worth your time. Oh, and speaking of, sorry, a little bit of a side note on that one. For those of you who signed up on our newsletter list and mm-hmm. you didn't get the welcome email sequence, someone just told us about that. So I went through and I'm I'm working on correcting that. <laughs> because I'm a technician. I think I can do everything myself. And then, you know, something technical that I don't even realize is a problem happens. So (laughs) the welcome sequence was not going out to everyone. So if you did not get your password for the technician treasure trove, definitely send us an email. Let us know. I will make sure you get it. But if you have signed up in the last, I think month, two months, I think I sent everyone an email and just said, Hey, I'm so sorry that that didn't happen. So definitely look for that if, if you signed up and you didn't get it or let me know and I will, I will get it to you. We will fix it. Please sign up. All right. Upon history, you should find out the appetite of your pet and kind of like we were already just discussing diet changes. Are they eating currently? Do you notice a decrease? 
or an increase. I mean, sometimes that can happen mm -hmm. when we do GI workups. Are they eating but unable to hold it down? Are they interested in food? Um, like they seem really excited for it, like a lab, and then all of a sudden they walk away and that's very abnormal for a lab, but it happens. Or again, like I said, are they ravenous but still losing weight? That's a, it's a big feline thing if you know your feline maybe thyroid diseases. Yeah. So one thing that Jordan talked about was the interest in food. You walk up to the bowl. Well, might you, the pet walks up to the bowl and turns <laughs> away. That if you, if you think about it, that means that they're hungry, right? Cause they're walking up to the bowl, but then they smell it. And it could be that the smell is making them nauseous. And so all of a sudden they're like, Oh, uh, nope. And they walk away. Like if you've ever done that, you're like, I'm hungry. And you have the stomach flu and then you smell something and you're like, Nope lost my appetite. So, well, and I think you can dive in even like a little bit deeper. So like if clients are noticing that, like ask them what they're seeing after that happens. Like when the pet turns away, like, are they drooling excessively? Are they lip smacking? Are they doing like a hard swallow? Like you can ask a few more questions. <laughs> Do they like dry heave? Yeah. Have yeah. That? So that's, it's, that one's a subtle one. I think too, if they just like smell it, they're excited. And then they're like walking away and cats do that a lot. Yeah. I think cats but it's are not normal. It. No, there's no such thing as normal cat vomiting. <clears throat> there is no such thing as normal cat vomiting. Thank you. <laughs> so, and, and with remember that, that episode, we want, <laughs> we want to remember how to tell the difference between vomiting and regurgitating. So episode three, we talked vomiting, just normal cat vomiting. There's no such thing. Uh, definitely take a listen to that one because you know, especially talking to your clients about the difference between regurgitating versus vomiting. Um, that's, a, that's a really big thing. Yeah. And you can find those show notes on that too at imfpp.org slash episode three. And then kind of moving forward, what comes out the other end defecation, <laughs> we had a uh, episode about this as well. So we go into depth um, about kind of just how to determine the type of diarrhea your clients are seeing at home or you are seeing in the clinic. So that's in episode four, diarrhea, large bowel or small bowel, the scoop on number two. And that is the show notes are also found at imfpp.org slash episode four. Yeah. Going back to the beginning. I know. See, we did these on purpose the way we did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Please go back and listen. <laughs> All right. So with chronic GI, it's, God, the differential diagnosis, we, Jordan and I were kind of talking before we recorded it, the differential diagnosis is like everything, right? So GI signs, clinical signs can manifest from so many different diseases, which is why with everything we kind of talk to you guys about, we do baseline values. So mm -hmm. we do our full chemistry, electrolytes, CBC, urinalysis. Cortisol is <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily baseline, but it can be. But, you know, it, it, when we, we did talk about that with Addison's that, mm -hmm. you know, you, you do want to check those things and kind of do all those basics before we go down the road of, what is this actual, is it GI disease or is it some other metabolic disease that, that mm -hmm. we're seeing? And radiographs um, are kind of included in like a general workup as well, just because a lot of general practice can do radiographs versus an ultrasound and yeah. you can see a foreign body. Yeah. As I say, radiographs <laughs> are great for foreign bodies. Coins. You know, are, do you have a large heart? Do you have a, a hernia? 
right? Yeah, because um, we've so talked about the vomiting with like enlarged hearts and stuff like that and like mm -hmm. cardiac disease and stuff. So yeah, I think that goes in your like baseline workup. And then in internal medicine, things kind of change and evolve. And some of the newer studies out there or newer recommendations is that, yes, you do all your baselines and then treatment wise slash diagnostics is you want to deworm these animals because just because you have a negative fecal float doesn't necessarily mean they don't have parasites. Mm -hmm. So we deworm them, make sure we're covering our bases with that. Cause you never, you never want to go in for a scope and be like, Hey, look at the tapeworms. Right. So deworm them. As cool as that would be to see on like an endoscopic procedure, you, you kind of go in and you'd be like, Oh man, we messed up. Oh yeah. Didn't <laughs> I, catch that one. Oh yeah. That would suck, but it would be cool to see worms on a, on a scope. I think just because they'd be so big. You just totally gave me the heebie jeebies. I hate well, worms. <laughs> but yeah, anyway. it'd be cool to see on a scope, but it would, I would probably freak out. I don't, I don't like parasites, Jordan. I don't. See, I don't mind. I would love to see like that rhino that we do sometime. And then like the parasites like scurry from the light. Ugh. Nasal Ugh. mites. Nasal. Oh. We had a nasal mite case that as soon as we intubated them, the mites poured out the nose. And I was... <laughs> I would love to see that. I mean, no. I'm not a big fan of like the worms coming out the Ooh, butt, like in clumps. No. Like I don't miss GP for that, but like nasal no. mites would be really, really cool. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but deworm. <laughs> and then the other part is, so we deworm these patients and then we do a food trial. And which we go into detail on how to do that next week. I believe we do. Yeah. Next week we, we definitely do that because we talk about food sensitivity, but a food trial is really important because if there is some component of inflammation in the guts because of food sensitivity, we want to minimize that as much as possible. Because if, if that is part of what's going on, if, if, you know, intestinal parasites or food is causing inflammation in the guts, well, we're going to get biopsy samples that say inflammatory bowel disease because mm -hmm. the inflammation's there. So we try to minimize all the variables of that inflammation, get that down as much as possible. Hopefully they feel better and we don't have to biopsy, but if that's not working, then we can do the biopsy and we've taken out the worms and the food as mostly the food as potential causes. And so, you know, that, that gives you a little bit better result. Plus you don't have to do an anesthetic procedure sometimes for these patients, if they're going to respond, like why not just try treatment options first? So it saves the clients a lot of money too. Yes. So kind of moving into diagnostics, uh, we already discussed like the baseline lab work values, CBC, chem, electrolytes, UA. Fecal exams can be pretty important. So you can do a direct smear, fecal cytology, a rectal exam is super important if patients are having GI issues. Mm -hmm. Now, mind you, most of the time your doctor's going to be doing this, but at least if like they don't do it, you can be like, hey, what about a rectal exam? Fecal float again, because you do want to rule out parasites, even though you can get false negatives fecal sedimentation and then fecal PCR. So it's funny because with the fecal PCR tests, like we'll recommend them and they're like pretty expensive. And the moment we recommend them, like all of a sudden the pets like aren't pooping or like their poop is normal. Cause we're like <laughs> only drop it off if it's like diarrhea. Like we'll send them home with a cup. Like we'll keep them for a couple hours, see if they poop for us because of course they're having diarrhea like all over the house. Yeah. But the moment we like try to collect some, they're back to normal. And then we've had people drop off like normal poop samples. And I was like, no, 
no, <laughs> like we need diarrhea. <laughs> I've definitely, I don't know if you guys have done this for your fecal samples, especially pets that are symptomatic. We do the red rubber catheter up the butt and suck out the, the diarrhea. Ew. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> it, it, it is gross, but there's no contamination of anything on that. Like there's no poop I mean, on the that's, floor contamination. That's valid because like I'm like out in the yard, like walking behind them in my gloves and like mm -hmm. just holding a cup underneath their butthole. It's <laughs> like hoping they don't get it on me. Like especially when they have like really watery feeling oh. and I'm like, ah. Oh. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. We had one the other day that we ended up doing the the, the red rubber catheter with because I took it outside to get a fecal sample and it was like a fire hose, just like water. And I couldn't get it off the ground. I was like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I was like, I know there's more in there because I saw it on ultrasound. So we're going to, we're going to go yeah. suction your butt. So speaking of imaging, <laughs> so we kind of talked about doing radiographs. You can do plus or minus barium surgeons by the way if it, you suspect a foreign body surgeons don't like barium there's other things that you can use mm -hmm. radiology consults are always super great and helpful if you don't if you're you or your doctor aren't really 100 sure what you're seeing but in i am we do a lot of ultrasounds and i say a lot not mm -hmm. lightly like we <laughs> oh my gosh almost every consult we do gets an ultrasound and then there's the many recheck ultrasounds yeah. we're measuring everything yeah. so the purpose of the yeah. ultrasound is really to measure intestinal thickness if you go back to your anatomy and physiology all the different wall layers of your mm -hmm. bowels um we measure all of those and then look at the layers are they all present and in normal ratios. So you can have like the inner layer thicker than the outer layer or vice versa. And, mm -hmm. and those indicate different things, which we'll go into more detail kind of as we run through our GI series too. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. And then obvious things. So is there a mass present? I think they, we've seen a lot of like ileocolic masses. Yeah. The ileocolic masses, we've, we've definitely seen quite a few of those. Again, we will get into like what to do about those later. And then do the intestines have a starry like look to them? So it's like the speckly within the layers of the mucosa. It's very pretty on ultrasound. It but it definitely means like inflammation and just like not right. Uh, yeah. So the, the, the starry appearance is classic for lymphangiectasia and in it's because the, the, the ducts are dilated and it, it's just one, if you've seen it on endoscopy, it totally makes sense mm -hmm. when you see it in ultrasound that, yeah, definitely. that's what we're seeing endoscopy and that's what we see on the ultrasound. Yeah. So it's pretty, it's pretty classic. For Which that. is nice when you do like ultrasound before endoscopy, because you're like, yeah, we were totally seeing that. And like, this is where we were seeing it. And then you can also like evaluate the mechanical like function of the small intestinal tract and the large intestinal tract. Does the movement mm -hmm. appear normal? Is it, is it moving too much? Or is there stasis and it's just not moving at all? So yeah, I mean like the increased movement. So it's like hypermodal. It's really cool to see on ultrasound. I mean, it sucks for the dog. Cause like, I don't know if you've ever been like super GI crampy. Like when you have some sort of like GI distress, it oh. hurts. And I swear you can feel and you can just, your like, guts feel like just sloshing yeah. around. Oh. So because like yeah. it's not moving in the right direction, like your guts are moving and your peristaltic waves are like doing what they're, doing supposed, what they're to, supposed to, but do. like everything just can't go forward. So it's just exactly. sloshing around mm -hmm. or it's decreased. And there's, like I said, stasis where nothing's moving and that 
can definitely, that can occur with like severe GI disease and obstruction in a susception, which is again, really cool to see on ultrasound, but sucks for the animal because it's gotta be painful. But like the bowels are like so dilated and you just mm. see like all the fluid just stuck. And then you just see their intestines within each other. It's like, it's the coolest thing, but I'm just like, oh my God, get this dog to surgery so it can feel better. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we, we actually, we just had two of them this week, oh. which is crazy. Cause I can't even tell you the last time I saw an intussusception and it was an older cat. And so oh, my weird. doctor was like, where's the mask? Right? Because a mask can definitely cause intussusception. And then we found it and we were Does like, the there's the mask. It has lymphoma, doesn't it? Uh, I don't know. Probably, unfortunately, it was an older cat, and they decided to. I mean, to use that's it. not wrong. If it had an interception, no, like that poor that poor thing was probably miserable. Yeah, it definitely was painful when we oh, when we hit sure. that spot too. And that's uh, speaking of. Hold on, <laughs> tech soapbox for a second there. When these because these guys can be really painful with their gut if they're you know, we just kind of talked about it. Like if they're super crampy and everything's mad, sometimes they need some pain meds to just be able to be comfortable mm -hmm. during an ultrasound. Cause really most of the times pets are going to lay there and be still and unless they're young and stupid and they don't like being on their back. Yeah. But most of the times they get in the trough, they realize we're not killing them and they settle down. But if you notice that, especially if you go over one particular spot or all of a sudden, you know, they're moving a lot, they're vocalizing, that kind of thing. They, they may need pain meds and you need to feel comfortable talking to the doctor mm -hmm. about that. Cause so, that's definitely true um, for like any pancreatitis, well, not any pancreatitis case, but most pancreatitis cases. But yeah, mm -hmm. I mean like just gut disease in general, like I'm a huge baby when it comes to like my guts hurting. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, speak up and talk to your doctor and just be like, Hey, every time you go over that spot, like they react why don't we try to give something? So we're going to, we're going to dive into the meat and potatoes of internal medicine and the things we love to do. So we're going to talk about endoscopy. We, we kind of touched uh, on it a little bit in the um, holiday episode mm -hmm. with foreign body scopes, but we're really going to talk about it here because it is a big part of gastrointestinal disease workup. It is very tech labor intensive. Mm -hmm. And so this is, this is where we're going to really kind of dive into it. So what endoscopy is, is we have a long scope. So there's, if you haven't seen one, it's most of them are like this long black tube with a camera on the very end of it. There's a channel that goes next to the, the camera that we can use instruments through. And then that goes into the animal. There's light, there's suction, there's um, like a water spray that goes onto it as well. So we use this to look into the guts of our patients. So we can go from the upper and down. So upper endoscopy, upper GI, or lower, go through the rectum and go up. Um, as far as we can, like in the colon. Mm -hmm. So this is how we visualize the inside of the, the guts. 
as well as get biopsy samples. Yeah. And, and like we said, so you can look for foreign bodies. You're going to look down the esophagus looking for any sort of like esophagitis. Like if pets are showing signs of like a regurge, they can mm-hmm. show signs of esophagitis, especially like the closer you get to that cardiac sphincter. Like sometimes that's like the whole esophagus will be normal looking. And then that cardiac sphincter is just like hissed off. Dang like it's so, just like, yeah. mm-hmm. I hate life right now. And everything's just going to come back up because I can't close. Yeah. And then you can go down into the stomach and then down through the pylorus into the duodenum through an upper GI scope. And then, yeah, the colonoscopies aren't as fun just because someone has to be the butthole. You know how you have to like hold all the air in? So (laughs) the, the, the purpose of scope. So like when you do an endoscopic procedure, like you have to insufflate the GI tract with air. So like everything inflates so you can see everything so it's not all just kind of closed down on top of the camera mm-hmm. so yeah when you go when you go through the mouth there's sphincters like the cardiac sphincter and stuff that hold the air in for the most part sometimes we'll have to hold off the esophagus but it's not as bad as holding the butthole to make sure the air doesn't come out <laughs> that way <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep and then yeah so you go rectum then you go up the descending then you go the transverse colon then you go the ascending because you're going backwards Mm -hmm. and then you get to the iliocolic junction right iliocolic junction and hopefully you can get into the ilium and get a sample sometimes we do blind biopsies because sometimes we just can't get into that sphincter as well and so we get biopsies from all those areas yeah and these procedures like upper gi's are preferably done after a minimum of 12 hours fasting. I know for our lower GIs, we do 48 hours and we have like a special protocol mm-hmm. of like lactulose and enemas and a lot of all the fun stuff. <laughs> you repeat enemas every one, four hours until clear water comes out. We are our protocol. I don't remember exactly what it is, but I, it's mostly like metoclopramide and lactulose and a lot of dogs will become like pretty clear over 48 hours like at home and then we'll do like one to two enemas prior to the scoping procedure which is actually a lot nicer than keeping them in the hospital for like 24 to 36 hours prior to Mm. an enema every three hours yeah we usually do like a 24 hour thing we usually have them drop off the day before Mm -hmm. get them on fluids we used to do go lightly but we don't really do those anymore sometimes we'll do the the tablets the is it the osma prep osma prep but those are really expensive so sometimes we just do enemas and, and clear things out and for the most part we usually get things pretty clear. Yeah, it works pretty well. Just red rubbers all day, warm water and lube. Yeah, but one thing to kind of mention before we get too far into this, whenever we're doing these procedures, ideally these patients have not been started on steroid therapy Mm -hmm. prior to doing the scope because that can change the results, right? So like, especially prednisone, that can affect the results. So if you're worried about lymphoma or anything like that, do the scope first, then start therapy. So that's just something to kind of keep in mind for a client. And, and you don't have to do a scope. You can treat. We give them the option. Like just know that we typically don't do a scope after we've already started. Yeah, exactly. Like, cause some people will want to do a scope after. And I'm like, we really don't want to waste your money. Cause like it masks the inflammation. Like, so yeah, we give people the option, like either you can start steroids and see how the pet does, or we can scope 
and then still have to start steroids down the road. Mm-hmm. Or you scope and you send home the steroids, right? Yeah, yeah. You're like, we're just going to start it because or we, we know. We give an injection as they steroids. wake up and like, yeah. <laughs> we're like, yep. okay, here you go. We're getting you started already. Yeah. yeah. So the anesthetic procedure, like pre-op procedures should be followed, whatever you routinely do, I suppose. I was going to say our pre-op is like, the lab work, we make sure something's been done within the last like couple of days. Yeah. So like if we do like a full big panel at like a consult and that was a month ago, sometimes we just do like an iStat and a PCV in-house just to make sure nothing's changed like dramatically mm-hmm. before anesthesia. And then we do IV catheter fluids. Yeah, we um, preload. The the meds we typically use for a procedure is we pre-med with butorphanol mm-hmm. because most of the times it's not a painful procedure. If we're worried about pain, sometimes we'll do fentanyl instead, yeah. but um, most of the times it's Torb, Dazolam, and Propofol. I mean, that's kind of our go-to. Yeah. We, we use either butorphanol or uh, buprenorphine, just kind of depending on the patient. Like if they're, if it looks like it's angry on ultrasound, we'll usually do buprenorphine. <laughs> Like if it just looks uncomfortable. Yeah. So it's interesting. My doctor, so I gave the wrong drug and she, she was like, well, we'll see if we can get into the sphincter. So buprenorphine can sometimes make it a little bit more difficult to get through the pylorus, oh, interesting. which I thought was interesting. So, um, yeah, I'd never heard of it. Um, and we'd used buprenorphine on other patients before. Yeah. Um, with a different doctor. So I don't know. It's interesting. It'd be, it'd be interesting to see, you know, yeah, it'd be how interesting much to compare. that is true. So. Yeah. I think that, would, yeah, we should definitely look into that. And then, you know, the protocol. So we have our drugs and then we typically, we have an anesthetic technician. So somebody always monitoring anesthesia and then you have the procedure tech because usually the doctor's kind of, well, in mind, it's the doctor's like manipulating the scope mm-hmm. while, the technician is doing the biopsy forceps and do, doing the biopsies basically. Mm-hmm. So, th- so we usually have three people in each procedure, the doctor plus two techs. Yeah, that's ours too. Uh, and then while you're monitoring anesthesia, so if you're the anesthetic tech on this, you're going to look for vagal response because you're going through sphincters, you're, you're, you know, inflating things they can actually vagal. Um, so that's just something to kind of keep in mind. The other thing too, is when the doctors are like in the duodenum, you want to check to make sure like the stomach is getting, isn't getting too distended from the gas that they're, or the air that they're pumping in. Mm -hmm. So sometimes like, especially if you start noticing like the heart rates going up and stuff like that, check the stomach just to make sure you know, they're basically not bloating, mm-hmm. <laughs> causing the heart rate to go up from the pressure. So you want to, you want to keep a look at that. And if you need to, you know, sometimes you can just push on the stomach and just depress it or decompress it, or you have the doctor suction yeah. and get some of the air out of yeah. it. And then of course, heat support, um, heat support's really important for these guys. Cause most of the times they're little cats with bad body condition score anyways. Mm-hmm. So you're, you know, you're keeping them as warm as possible during your procedure. Yeah. And that should be just part of your routine monitoring is monitoring that temperature just to be sure, because, uh, hypothermia can decrease, um, like platelet function and stuff too. So you are at more risk of like bleeding. And of course they just are slower to wake up and, and all the things that go along with just hypothermia. But we, we set up the endoscope scope in just ahead of time, just to be sure it's properly working. So that's part of like our pre-procedure. We'll set up the anesthesia machine. We'll set up the endoscope machine, inspect for any damages, which my heart always like kind of races. Like when I try to test Mm. like the suction or the water (laughs) 
or the mm-hmm. insufflation because it's like heaven forbid anything don't work and this is like a thirty thousand dollar machine or however much it is and i'm like don't drop it you want to check all that my we did an endoscopic procedure on monday and my water wasn't working so check with your like manufacturer as to like how to troubleshoot that and how to help clear any clogs with my scope in particular we just kind of soak the tip in a little bit of hydrogen peroxide and then i'll clean it with like a soft gauze and that that got it to squirt water and air accurately (laughs) Mm, yeah it's a very good point also ideally proper ppe is also worn during procedures yeah i was gonna say i wear (laughs) i wear the double glove and i wear um a gown because you know, my biopsy instrument always lands on my arm mm-hmm. as I'm taking it out. It's like it's hit me in the face before. And I'm just like, oh yeah, Ugh. that's the worst when like the doctor's like quickly <sighs> pulling it out and then it like splashes you as it like kind of comes out. And I'm like, oh, stop. Yeah. I know we need goggles, which is funny because I'm the one usually doing that. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, I just hit myself. <laughs> ah, oh yeah. <laughs> so PPE in case you don't remember what that is, is personal protective equipment. So gown, gloves, <laughs> A mask, towels, goggles, towels. I mean, I I wear glasses, but I don't wear goggles. I don't really wear a mask unless I'm worried about really gross things. Yeah. No, I mean, most of the time, for the most part, we're pretty clean. I just wear gloves. But um, (laughs) patients are typically positioned in left lateral recumbency. So a lot of this will, it could be a little confusing for some people, because a lot of procedures are done in right lateral, like E2 placements or PEG2 placements are done in right lateral, but endoscopic procedures are usually in left lateral. And that's just so it allows easy access to the pylorus. And then we place a mouth gag in place just to prevent the scope being bit. However, these spring-loaded mouth gags are no longer recommended for cats, like especially long-term. And this goes for like Mm. any anesthetic procedure too, by the way, like dentals and things, because it can cause ocular nerve damage from the pressure of the jaw being open so long. And I've seen this before where like a patient's come over like after a dental, like an hour long dental and they like, they had like facial paralysis and I was like, holy crap. Wow. I don't (laughs) think I've ever seen it, but I've heard of it. Definitely. Yeah. We have these, um, they're really cool, like little metal mouth gags with like squishy rubber tips that the teeth go into. You can do that. Or before we got those, we were actually taking, um, syringe. Yeah. Needle caps. The syringes taking out the the plunger cutting it to the right length and so either the one cc for cats or the three cc yeah we use like needle caps for cats the dogs will use like the spring-loaded mouth gags but for cats we'll use yeah most of the times we do for dogs because you don't need a you it doesn't need to be a lot of pressure it just needs to be so they don't bite down which is good but don't let your patient be awake (laughs) enough to even try to bite the scope is key right Yeah. (laughs) So be sure your patient is adequately anesthetized so your doctor can insert the scope into the mouth and start the procedure. And you're, you're doing full monitoring equipment, right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times these guys are, are, they're sick, compromised in some way anyways. Mm -hmm. So you should have like full monitoring equipment, heat support, all that stuff. Yeah. And IV fluids. We're not going to soap box on that too much. Because these procedures do typically last like I'd say probably 30 minutes to an hour for like just for an upper. Yeah. For just like a general, yeah. like obtain biopsies. Cause you're obtaining biopsies from two sites. You're doing the stomach and the duodenum. Mm-hmm. And then you want to like deflate the stomach and then just a- accurately or adequately recover the patient. Upper GI, like we said, examines the esophagus, enters the stomach, views the stomach. We do try to take photos. Yeah. We, we don't use it on ours because it, 
doesn't connect to our network. So we, um, we have iPads that we use for monitoring anesthesia oh, nice. and we just take pictures on those of the screen. Yeah. Yeah. We take pictures <laughs> on our phone. Not ideal, but you know, or I take pictures with my phone and then we upload it into the medical record. Yeah. yeah that's kinda, I have that's so many duodenum it, so. pictures on my phone. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like I have so many. So yes. So take photos and then enter into the duodenum. So what we always go like through the pylorus into the duodenum and then we'll biopsy out. So we'll biopsy, mm -hmm. we'll get about eight to 12 biopsies from the duodenum and then we'll come into the stomach and then do the same thing. And especially like if you like turn the scope, so where you're looking at where the scope is coming through the cardiac sphincter, mm -hmm. you want to biopsy up around there because what is it? Is it um, helicobacter that can accumulate there? Oh man, I think, I think it is helicobacter that likes to go there. Yeah. Yeah. But don't biopsy the don't scope. Don't biopsy the scope is like number one rule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then number two rule is when you're in the duodenum, don't biopsy the papillas. <laughs> the papilla is where the um, bile duct and the pancreatic duct exit into the intestines. So if you biopsy those spots, you can cause pancreatitis or an obstruction or anything from scar tissue. So don't biopsy there. Um, usually you can kind of see there's like little dots and the dog doctors are like, don't biopsy right there. And you're like, what is it? And they're like, it's the papilla. Um, so don't do that. <laughs> yes. And then big, big thing is make sure the biopsy forceps. So like you enter the biopsy forceps through a chamber in the endoscopic, uh, tubing. There's yeah, there's, there's usually like a little button that you can go through and that goes through the tube. That's the, the biopsy channel yeah. or instrument channel. And you want to make sure that yeah. your biopsy forceps are closed because you can wreck a scope if those biopsy forceps yeah. are open or if you're not holding them closed and they come open, you just like scrape the entire inside. Ooh. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah, that's a good way to send your scope out for repair. Because mm -hmm. if you get water through that, then you can ruin a scope. So just be very careful about that. Yeah. And then we don't, so you have a comment in here. Don't leave lids of biopsy jar open during this procedure because it's a hazard. But I've seen people have the biopsy jar open and actually are like dropping the samples oh. into the biopsy jar or worse is dipping your oh, forcep in gosh. the fluid, you know, your formalin and then to get the sample off. And that is do not do that. And then putting then it you're also back in the introducing dog. the yeah. Then you're introducing formalin into the animal, which can be carcinogenic. So don't do that. So if doing a lower GI endoscopic procedure or colonoscopy, you can do additional enemas during anesthesia if needed. However, again, mm -hmm. monitor your temperature because if you're doing mm -hmm. that and then you're introducing air up there too, like their temps can drop pretty rapidly. Yeah, I try to do. I use like warm water or warm saline if I have to yeah, keep doing them. Yeah, exactly. But we don't, we don't have to do that very often. And then I know you do your, like you get your biopsies out of your forceps differently than I do. Well, sort of differently. So I use a needle, like a 25 gauge needle and you don't want to like scrape it out of the biopsy forceps. You want to just gently like nudge it out because you don't want to damage the samples that you obtain. Yeah. As, as gently as you can, sometimes it doesn't go very gently because it's stubborn, but yeah, well, just, you want to kind of try to roll it, gently put it on wherever you're putting it. You know, when you get those samples that like, 
you can tell the tissue's disease because it just falls apart. Like yeah. those are really, really frustrating. We use little cassettes that we get through our lab and we do like nice little lines and rows of our samples just to try to keep everything together. And then when you close it, it keeps them all in place. Mm-hmm. But, and then Yvonne, you do... I use a cover slip. So we use a cover slip and then we put the samples on the cover slip and then drop the cover slip into the formalin. And so Jordan and I were talking before this episode, I will probably need to check with my lab just as a reference to see if they do have a preference, because that's kind of how we've always done it. Mm -hmm. I've seen the cassettes. We just don't use them. So that might be something just check with your lab just to see, you know, do they have a preference? Because Jordan was saying her lab won't even accept them because it's glass yeah and it's a hazard yeah so just just check with whatever lab that you're using if they have a preference as far as like how the samples you know before they get in the formalin what they're what you're putting them on yeah exactly and then we like to rinse our forceps off in between like obtaining each sample mostly because like opening and closing it can get sticky if you don't Mm -hmm. like it'll just it'll get kind of clogged which Mm -hmm. is wonderful Yep. And you're going to repeat all of that a bunch of times until you get all your samples. <laughs> it's funny. Cause we like my, we have like a language when we do it, he's like open and then I open and then he's like close and then I close and then we pull it out and then I put it in the cassette and then he doesn't say anything. I just hand it back to him and I'm like medium. And then, so we have like a, that one was just mediocre. You could do better. Come on now, mm. let's try to get better samples. So we have like a small, medium and large that I just we just so so do you not like put the instrument through the channel and everything i do but he guides it so like i'll put it in there and then he'll like push it out and kind of go where he wants to and then i open and he pushes it towards whatever space he wants yeah no so i do i do all the instrumentation stuff so my doctor's just handling the scope and then like obviously she tells me where to go but then i like push and and do all that stuff so Huh, yeah, no, I basically just I think open it's a doctor close. preference. Definitely. I don't know if any of you have worked with internists, but they can be a little particular. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you're going to do all of that stuff for each of the body parts. So stomach, duodenum for an upper. If you're doing a lower, it's stu- upper, lower, it's stomach, duodenum, colon, and then ileum if you can get into there. We very rarely biopsy the cecum. And we don't do the esophagus either. <laughs> yeah, no, you don't. It, the esophagus is so tough. Like it, you can barely get a sample of the, the, of the esophagus anyway. So yeah. once you've done all of your samples, you want to make sure you fully deflate the stomach. So the doctors are doing this as they're coming out. They're deflating as they go. You just really want to make sure you're not leaving a ton of air in these patients because there, there is a certain amount that's going to be left over because we're pushing air through. So it's getting into all of the intestines, mm-hmm. but we want to make sure that our stomach isn't inflated and potentially causing like a, a bloat situation later mm-hmm. or, or just generalized uncomfortableness. Right. Yeah. And then as they're coming out, like the esophagus, you know, my doctor will suction through the esophagus and just make sure that there's no stomach yeah, juices left in there that could cause you know strictures or um, pneumonia <laughs> because of aspirating it as we're mm-hmm. recovering so we just we suction as we go and and get them yeah you know, get them recovered yeah but recovering patients is usually fairly uneventful knock on wood for all the jinxes that we probably just mentioned no <laughs> 
Now, I mean, there's definitely things you have to be aware of, like any anesthetic procedure recovery, but it's not, I mean, there's no, there's no additional like things with recovery on these guys. The, The big thing is just telling clients that there's gas that we introduced so they could fart more, burp more. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're a little bit more crampy just because like that air is getting through. And if you're doing enemas, they're going to have watery diarrhea the next day that may be worse than what they came in with. So that's just something to kind of talk to your clients about. But most of the times these guys recover super easily and yeah. are going home within a couple of hours. Of the yeah. Person. And we just tell them to take it easy that night. We do warn people to for the pe- potential blow. It's like a pretty low potential, but we just warn them of it because mm-hmm. of especially your deep chested dogs. Um, because we introduced air into the GI tract, they could GDB. Again, we suction most of that air out mm-hmm. and knock on wood, I've never seen that happen, but yeah. we warn clients that if they are concerned for that and what to watch for to come back through the ER. And then just general scope maintenance. So I like to, um, once we're kind of done, I put a little bit of enzymatic cleaner in the water that I was using to like rinse off my, my instrument, my biopsy instrument. I put that in there and I just suction all that water and enzymatic cleaner through just to help prevent anything from drying, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially if you're doing a lower. Yeah you know, just, just suction that through and then, you know, put it, put it to the side so I can recover my patient and then do all the cleaning. But you're definitely, you know, do a pressure check before you submerge the instrument to make sure nothing happened while you were doing your procedure. So you're pressure checking before and you're pressure checking afterwards. And then you're going to follow your scope cleaning directions, which typically is distilled water with an enzymatic cleaner and then you rinse that. So you use your, your cold sterilization, make sure it gets through all the crevices for that, for the amount of time you're supposed to. And then we rinse that with distilled, clean distilled water again. So not the same as before, clean distilled water. Sometimes we'll run some air through it just to make sure it gets, gets dry. And then you hang it up, let it dry. But that's usually the procedure for cleaning it. Mm-hmm. And you want to make sure you're, you know, you're wiping down the outside of it, especially where the doctors are touching too, just to make sure we're getting everything off of it. Nothing, mm-hmm. nothing contaminating. Yeah. And then kind of like other special studies that you could do, um, like fluoroscopy or a swallow study. We don't use this very often. If, if we think of fluoroscopy procedures needed, we'll usually refer it to university. I think you said the same thing, right? I mean, yeah, we, I mean, we have fluoro, but we don't do swallow studies at our clinic. Um, we usually send them to Davis. So you see mm-hmm. Davis just cause the, they've done more of them. Mm-hmm. So it just makes more sense for us to send them up there. Yeah. And then I know we've talked about special tests like TLI, PLI, cobalamin, and folate. We use Texas NM. We talked about this for sure in the GI yeah. or the diarrhea episode. So kind of a brief overview of that B12, vitamin B12 or cobalamin is absorbed in the distal small intestine. So the ileum fully is absorbed in the proximal intestine. Uh, low TLI can indicate EPI or an exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. And then high PLI can indicate pancreatitis. So we touched on all that in the diarrhea episode. That's episode four. So and hopefully like more on these that. special tests are things you're doing prior to doing endoscopy, right? So yeah, that should be done before. (laughs) And then treatment. Yeah. So we talked about this before. We're not going to really talk too much about treatment for this episode 
just because it really depends on what your diagnosis is. And we're going to get into those different diseases in the next couple of episodes. So for now, it's more treating clinical signs. So, you know, whether that's an anti-nausea medication, anti-emetic, you know, an appetite stimulant, sometimes we'll do steroids if we've done our scoping, but, but again, it's, it's symptomatic care Mm -hmm. for now. And then again, depending on what like your biopsy or your lab work shows treat from there. Yes. And hospitalization could be needed if like dehydration severe, right. Outpatient therapy can be utilized a lot with your general dewormers and GI medications. But again, we'll get into, we'll get into all that. And then we talked about client communication just in general, um, kind of what to expect from home. We talked about that. And then the other big thing is for our GI cases, we really are going to be doing a lot of follow-up with these guys to make sure, because they're, they're chronic GI cases. So we want to make sure that we follow up, see how they're doing the day after a procedure, if we've done a procedure. And then, you know, if, if they're on a diet trial, we touch base with them and kind of depending on what's going on. So there's a lot of communication and this can be done by us. Like mm-hmm. the technicians can be the ones doing most of this communication. We can usually answer most of their questions yeah, and that really saves our doctors and frees up their time. So yeah. fine communication, that's huge for us. Plus I think um, it's helpful too, like when the doctor does go to call the client with the biopsy results or lab results, mm-hmm. like to know that Oh, you know, they were a little slow to recover. They just weren't themselves for 24 hours, but they're doing better. And mm-hmm. on these medications, the diarrhea seems to be better or we're eating better. So I think those are nice to have like communications to have in the record prior to your doctor calling with results. Yeah. Cause the results, depending on where they go can take three to five days or you yeah. know, potentially more. So touching base ahead of time. Yeah. You should be following up with these patients the next day, especially if they have an endoscopic procedure. And then the cautions for this, I mean, really, it's just going to be making sure you have your PPE. So don't get poop in your mouth. <laughs> that, that's our, that's our caution for this week. <laughs> oh, and don't biopsy the scope. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the tip of the week. So this week's tip of the week is going to be your resting energy requirement calculations. Um, I think that's huge. We, we tend to forget that every patient, every time needs a diet, needs nutrition. So remember your RER, that is our tip of the week. And now for the question of the week. So we want to know from you guys, have you participated in endoscopy procedures before? And what's your favorite part? And we'll put in the, we'll put in our um, Facebook group what our favorite parts are. I'm sure you probably know what it is, but <laughs> we'll talk about that. And then if you haven't seen an endoscopic procedure, do you want to? And, you know, if, if you do want to, like, are there ways for you to be able to do that, which would be kind of cool. So that's our question for the week. We're centering on endoscopy because that's what we talked the most about this episode. So yeah, yeah. answer the question of the week on our Facebook page, which is the internal medicine for vet techs podcast group, or mm-hmm. you can, you can answer it on the internal medicine for vet techs page. And then of course you can go to internal medicine for vet slash show notes and find episode, episode 13. 13, lucky number 13. Yay. <laughs> which is our gastrointestinal disease workup, yeah. um, which is today's episode. And then we'll also have all of our resources, the different pages that you can check out, um, some of the stuff we've talked about. And, you know, let us know. Remember, there is the, we, we have the technician treasure trove. So check that out if you haven't signed up. Or if you did, you didn't get your email, please let me know. And um, yeah, 
So you can send us an email to at podcast at internal medicine for We'd love to hear from you. Or again, reach out to us on any of the platforms. We'll likely respond. And we're pretty quick about it usually because we get really excited. Um, <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jordan and I are like, did you see? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we get very excited. All right, guys. Uh, anything else you can think of, Jordan? I think that's a wrap. Boop, boop. Well, thank you guys for joining us and happy 2020 to everybody. Uh, I hope you guys are having a great start to the year and um, looking forward to hanging out with you guys because we got some events coming up that we'll be announcing soon. Uh, and yeah. All right, Jordan. I'll talk to you next week. Bye, Bye guys. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.